Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hey, hey guys, welcome to the very first episode of Homebase Hope for 2019. I am so excited that you are joining me today because today it is just you and I and I'm going to be talking about something that I am super passionate about and that is reframing and rethinking our current understanding of autism. So if you have been listening to the show for a little while now, you'll know I cover a whole range of topics and get a whole diverse range of professionals and people on the show because I love to capture autism from different angles and different perspectives. And it's so important to do this. And I'm going to explain why in the episode today. So I really hope that what I talk about today resonates with you. But more importantly, I hope that you take action from home because this is what the Home Based Hope podcast is all about, is about giving you food for thought is about giving you the tools and the strategies to make a difference from home base. So let's get stuck into it. And what we first need to do is a little bit of unlearning. So unlearning what we currently understand autism to be. In order to look at it through this different lens, we need to challenge and question what is currently accepted about autism. And I'm not asking you to ignore what we currently know about autism or what you currently understand autism to be, but I want you to be brave enough to question it, okay? So sometimes we need to step back from what we know or what we think we know because we don't know what we don't know. We need to open our mind and let go of some of these assumptions that we have, and this is exactly what I needed to do because Look, we currently recognize autism as a brain condition, and it is. It's a neurodevelopmental condition, so neuro meaning brain. But we can't neglect the fact that the brain is connected to the rest of the body. The brain is not some isolated island, and what happens in the brain stays in the brain. Of course, that's not the case. What goes on in the brain has this flow-on effect to every other system in the body. So it makes sense that we need to start looking at the body as a whole and look at all of the systems in the body and how they're influencing and impacting each other because autism is a whole body, whole child condition. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background information because I haven't always seen it this way. And... It wasn't until about three years ago when I was working in a very remote part of Australia, so up in the Northern Territory, uh, I was the only occupational therapist in the area and I was the only health professional who was actually interested in the area of autism. So I was sort of like the little one-stop shop because that's really all I was doing. And there were a lot of people up there who had a lot of people and children on the spectrum who had autism who required interventions. So it really was like rocket fuel for my autism journey. I really needed to knuckle down and start understanding more about autism 
So my first client up there was actually a little three-year-old boy who was absolutely beautiful. He was a gorgeous little soul. He was nonverbal and he had some serious stimming going on. So he would spin endlessly around and around and around in circles and never get dizzy. And if he wasn't spinning, he was rocking in the lounge room chair and body slamming. So he'd slam his back against the couch and get that deep pressure proprioceptive input that was really calming for him. He was in his own world constantly. He um, wouldn't make eye contact. He didn't understand mum was mum or dad was dad. There was no concept of play. He had no understanding of safety. He would run across the road. There, there was a lot of concerns there that mum had and understandably she was stressed, she was frazzled, she, um, she was actually from a non-English speaking background. So Australia was her second home uh, and she felt very lost and isolated and alone. So it actually, I felt a huge responsibility to help her any way that I could and speaking with her and as a mum myself, it just really tugged on my heartstrings and it ignited this fire within me uh, to learn more about autism. And in order to do that, I realised I had to unlearn a lot of what I knew because I, I was looking into autism every night after work. I'd stay up at my computer and I would look at all these different disciplines doing things differently. And there were all these conflicting methodologies. And the more I learned, the more I realised how little I actually knew. So I started questioning everything that I understood autism to be. And I was asking these really basic questions like, well, what exactly is autism? And is it purely a genetic condition? Because if it's not, can lifestyle changes really make a difference? So I had this, had to let go of all these preconceptions of what I thought autism to be. And I had to start afresh because what I was learning just totally blew my mind and was nothing that I had been taught in my OT studies or anything that I'd been taught at any professional development course on autism. I started to learn about all these different foundations and organizations that help children on the spectrum but weren't mainstream and I had no idea they even existed. So this is just what really um, got me interested into the science behind autism because I started learning a lot more that I didn't already know. And one thing that really opened my understanding and opened my perspective and started me to rethink autism was looking at the history of autism. I'm not sure if you've ever looked into the history of autism, but it is interesting because what we understood autism to be 50 years ago is significantly different to what we understand it to be today. There's just been absolutely no consistency and it's hard, right? Because it's a subjective diagnosis. So it's not like diagnosing a stroke because there are no biological markers for autism. And I'm going to get into this a little bit later as well. But if we look into the, the history of autism, 
we start to understand it's changed so much over time that we really need to rethink what it is in order to be able to look at appropriate interventions. So in the 50s, autism was a psychological disorder. That's how we understood it. It was blamed on parents who were cold to their kids and we would call mums refrigerator mother because mums were being cold to their kids and then their kids would develop autism and there was just no warmth or no connection there and that's what caused autism. I mean, that's a really simplified version of it, but, you know, we know this is nonsense. This is not the case. We know autism isn't psychological and we know that it's not caused by mums being cold to their kids. In the 80s, autism was based on speech and behaviours and it was added to the DSM-3. So the DSM, the DSM stands for Diagnostic Manual, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And doctors were better able to diagnose autism in the 80s because we had a bit of a criteria for it. In the 90s, Asperger's was added to the DSM-4. So Asperger's previously wasn't on it. So it came onto the DSM-4. In 2013, the DSM-5 came out and Asperger's no longer existed. So they wiped Asperger's off the criteria um, and it no longer existed. It also had changes uh, to the criteria. So hyper and hyporeactivity to sensory input uh, became a new symptom and that previously wasn't recognised. Um, and instead of three categories, it changed to two categories. So there were lots of little changes in terms of the criteria for autism. And this has continued to change over time as how understanding has continued to change. And so really we need to think what is our understanding of autism going to be in 20 years from now and how is this criteria going to reflect that, that understanding because it is most certainly going to change. There is so much research being done and when we start to understand that our definition of autism and our criteria of autism is changing, then we, are, we become a little bit more open to rethinking what autism is because, to be honest, we don't really know and we're learning as we go. So for me personally, the diagnosis does not matter. The label is simply descriptive and it doesn't tell you anything about what is going on in the body, what to do about it, or the prognosis. It is a behaviourally defined condition. So there is no biology part of the definition of autism. There is absolutely no DNA test. There's no brain scan. There's no blood test. There's no form of biological testing that can be done to diagnose autism. It is all diagnosed based on subjective measures. There's no objective measures. So it's based on what we observe, basically. And I will have parents come up to me who will say that, well, one paediatrician has or is wanting to diagnose my child with autism. I've gone to another paediatrician for another opinion and they have said that they have ADHD. Or I've been to one paediatrician and they said they definitely have autism, they are on the spectrum, and another specialist has told me they don't have it. 
And so it is, it's a confusing world. Autism is very complex. We need to understand autism is subjectively uh, defined or diagnosed. So we can't focus too much on this definition because if we focus too much on this definition of autism, we can overlook all of the symptoms. And more importantly, we're overlooking the whole child. And we can close our eyes to many of the interventions that may not be autism specific, but may actually be useful and helpful for your child. So when I say that the label doesn't matter, I'm not saying that the label isn't necessarily important. I'm saying that the diagnosis of autism shouldn't limit your interventions because they have been placed into this box, into this diagnostic box. I totally understand and respect that the label can be very important for people on the spectrum because it can give them a sense of self-identity and this sense of belonging to a community and they have this sense of understanding. Um, And I am all for autistic pride. But when a diagnosis is given to a parent um, for their child and you're looking for interventions, please, I implore you, please don't close your mind to interventions that look beyond behaviour and look beyond just the brain because we know that the definition of autism is going to continue to expand as we continue to do more research and learn more about it. So just because the current definition is only based on behaviours because we don't know enough about it, please don't just limit your interventions to behaviours because many, the majority of autism-specific interventions focus very narrowly on behaviours. And we need to understand that behavior is just the tip of the iceberg. And I want you to see, if you have a child that has a lot of behavioral issues going on, I want you to see your child's behaviors as symptoms. And it's their their body's way of saying that something isn't right and that they need help. And when we understand that the body is this interconnected set of networks and no body part exists in isolation then we get a much better appreciation for the types of interventions we start to look outside the box in terms of interventions as well and actually look at the whole child and what works for your child because currently when we look at the medical system we have over specialized and dissected the body into all these different systems We've got people working on neurology. We've got people working on the cardiovascular system, people working on the digestive system and the muscular system. And it's just so segmented. And not many people are looking at the body as a whole anymore. And this is where the magic is. When we're talking about autism, we need to look at the whole child. And to be honest, it makes a lot of sense. Many kids on the spectrum have gastrointestinal problems. They may have seizures. They have a poor immune system. They have challenges with sleeping and sensory processing and a whole lot of different things that is going on in the body. And we tend to treat these as coincidental symptoms. But what if they're not? What if these symptoms are linked to autism and they are all part of the bigger picture? So when we start to rethink autism and we start to really delve deeper into what autism actually is, 
we start to realize that our current thinking is a little bit outdated. And so currently we understand autism to be a purely genetic condition. So we understand it to be something that's hardwired like a chromosomal condition like Down syndrome. And with the knowledge that we had back in the day, like I said, we make these assumptions with the information that we have, but we can't continue to believe that this is still the case with all the emerging evidence that we have pointing to environmental influences. So, of course, genes are associated with autism, but there is more to autism than just genes. And this is very widely accepted now, but it's just not often talked about. And the problem with people thinking that autism is purely a genetic condition is that they have this preconceived idea that then it's this life sentence and there's the, nothing that you can do about it except accommodate the symptoms. So parents tend to turn their back to all the possibilities of lifestyle as a serious intervention. And I can tell you now that there is so much more that we can do to help a child than purely accommodate the symptoms. So yes, absolutely, genes are associated with autism. Uh, But there is not one specific autism gene. There are hundreds of genes that are associated with autism. But what we know now is that environmental factors play a major role. And this is what I want to talk to you about now. So this isn't something that I was taught in university when I studied autism. It wasn't until I started doing my own research into this and I was helping out this family in the Northern Territory that in my research, one word will pop up again and again and again, and that was epigenetics. Now, I had absolutely no idea what this word meant three years ago, and I'm going to enlighten you now. So if you haven't heard of it, um, you know, it's becoming more popular. It's getting used a lot more as we start to understand lifestyle, um, how important lifestyle is. But lifestyle uh, epigenetics means the environmental factors imposed on our genes that have the ability to turn genes on and off. So it's a change in gene expression from outside forces. So basically this means that if a child, a child may be born with genes that make them vulnerable to autism, but lifestyle factors can ultimately determine whether these genes become activated or not. So things like diet, chemicals, stress, pollution, EMF exposure, damaged microbiome, sedentary lifestyle, all these things have a profound influence on gene expression. So what we eat and how we live changes our genetics. Who knew? I didn't know. I knew lifestyle was super important. Myself, personally, I am very into health and well-being, but I didn't know that it was so powerful uh, to this extent. So uh, it's actually a really empowering model because it means that you can make healthy lifestyle choices to make a difference to your child's needs. So there are a lot of things that we can do to reduce the extent to which a person with autism is exposed to these kind of challenges. And so what I learned was that your genes are not your fate. If you have the genes which predispose you to autism, what happens throughout 
the early stages of life and throughout life can determine how your genes are expressed. Okay, so let's look at the modern diet. So what we eat can affect us on a genetic level. And we know the good old saying, you are what you eat. And that really starts to put it into a little bit of perspective. But what we really need to be saying is, you are what your grandmother ate. Because what your grandparents ate affects you on a genetic level. And likewise, what you eat and how you live your life will have an impact on your grandchildren. Wow, (laughs) isn't that massive? So look, we need to start reducing the processed packaged food in and around the home because what's at home your child has access to and once it's in the home, it's so much harder to resist and to say no. Uh, I know this is super difficult for parents who have kids who are extremely fussy eaters and it is a step-by-step process and I do respect how challenging this can be Um, but we need to be real and we need to start looking at how much nutrition and what nutrients is my child actually getting are they purely living off white bland starchy foods that don't have any nutrient value Um, are they eating foods that are just covered and coated in sugar, what are they eating? Start looking at it and really start to understand that food is something that you can change. I'm not saying it's going to be easy and I'm not going to to say it's going to happen overnight. It is a process. But if we start being a bit more critical and start looking into how you can support the body through nutrition, this is going to help your child's behaviours and it's going to support them it's going to support their brain function um, because the brain needs the brain needs essential fatty acids. It needs antioxidants, vitamins, carbohydrates, proteins, minerals, all these beautiful things for fuel. What it doesn't need is chemicals, artificial flavors, preservatives, pesticide residues, all these things that give it a hard time. So we want to reduce the bad things and we want to increase the good. And this will happen over time. But it does take time, but it needs to start today. So gut health is another thing that I'm super passionate about. So the gut and the brain are inextricably linked and they're literally connected via the vagus nerve. So the microbiome, which are the all the beautiful little gut bugs in your tummy, they transmit information to the brain and vice versa. So They house 80% of our immune system. They produce all these feel-good hormones like serotonin and they're constantly absorbing, absorbing and digesting nutrients. So gut health is another thing that's really important to look into when we're talking about epigenetics. And chemicals. Now, this is another area that I am very passionate about. We live in a very toxic world these days. And we don't have to look any further than our own home to realize just how overloaded with chemicals our lives have actually become. When we start to look at all the chemicals that we keep under the kitchen sink, in the bathroom, in the laundry, in the garden shed, we've got conventional toothpaste and laundry detergent, washing liquid, shampoo, conditioner, bubble baths, sunscreens, moisturizers, uh, insect spray, baby wipes, deodorant, perfumes, 
all these things have so many chemicals. It's just a chemical concoction and they're man-made, they're synthetic and they don't work in alliance with our body. And so if we can start to slowly replace these with simple, natural, effective alternatives such as essential oils, we can really eliminate a lot of the toxins that we're putting in our child's body. So we really need to start looking at the chemicals in and around the house as well. And when we start to look at all these stresses that can occur in the early stages of life or prenatally, there's a lot of things that can go wrong because there are toxins everywhere. And I know we can't just live in a bubble. We, that's impossible these days. We can't block out all the toxins. But we can make small changes. So when the brain is overloaded with all these stress from poor diet, from chemicals, from um, EMF or emotional stress that's going on, then a person, a child's not going to be very resilient and they're going to become very vulnerable to all these little hits that pile up over time. And this is what's going to impact behaviour. Because the brain cannot function optimally when it's bombarded with all this stress. It starts to shut down and it will seek routine, it will seek sameness and the higher cognitive capacities of the brain, including communication and social skills, they won't function very well at all. And what's interesting is that these are the symptoms that we see in autism. It's rigidity, structure, repetitiveness. So what, what it looks like to me is that children with autism have these high stresses. They're more vulnerable to them and they have less resilience. And then the brain creates these kinds of behaviours when it's got this high total stress load and they just can't cope any longer. They become very rigid and structured and they become, they seek out this routine. So. What this is called is an allostatic load. So the constant stress and the constant wear and tear on the body is called the allostatic load. And it's just a chronic state of overload, basically. And we're not designed to handle all this stress. Our modern everyday life and all the chemicals and all the things that we've created, our body is not designed to handle and it's just increasing our body burden. So... How I see, what I see is that autism is this process and it happens when we have an increase or this high stress load because behaviour starts to change. If we increase the stress load, we have an increased behavioural challenges as well. And it seems to pile up and it's moment to moment. So one moment your child may be, functioning perfectly fine, there's hardly any meltdowns. But if we increase the stresses in their environment, then we can increase the challenges as well. So it can be this process. Autism should be viewed as more of a process rather than a thing. Autism isn't tangible. It's not a thing that you can see or um, define quite clearly. And that's why we have a hard time defining it. So I have worked with a lot of different families over the years and Every different family obviously has a different story. But what a lot of families will tell me is that their child 
seem to regress into autism and they appear to be developing normally but somewhere around the 18 month to 24 months they started to notice that their child would lose eye contact and they were no longer saying mum and dad and they they just weren't doing things that they were doing previously and when we start to look at autism as something that can be changed and influenced, we start to look at it as a process rather than a thing, then it makes more sense that, it, um, that a child can regress and make these regressions because parents would start to question whether they really saw that regression because that doesn't fit in with the model of autism. If we if autism was a purely hardwired genetic condition, you wouldn't see a regression because they have it. Um, but if you see it as a process and something that can be changed through epigenetic changes and through lifestyle, then a, a regression makes a little bit more sense. So I want to address a question that starts to pop up a little bit as we start to unwrap autism. And this is... Is autism really increasing? So I'd love to let you have a little think about that and I'd love to know what your thoughts are. Is autism really increasing or has it always been this way and we're just noticing it better? Because one in 60 kids in Australia have a diagnosis of autism and I think the latest statistics for America is about one in 40. This this does seem like the rate has skyrocketed. And when I was working at a special development school in Victoria, uh, a teacher told me that the school many, many years ago, she, she was working there for a long time, and she said that the majority of students that used to attend the school were they had a diagnosis of Down syndrome or cerebral palsy. And now the school has really expanded significantly to cater for many children on the autism spectrum. She said that there are a lot more children at the school now with autism than any other disability. And so, you know, it, it made me start to question, well, maybe we are noticing it better because it is around more. We're seeing it more because there is more of it. And if you believe that autism is a purely hardwired condition, if it is a fixed brain condition, then the rate increase makes absolutely no sense because you believe that autism is genetic condition, then genes don't work that way. So you can't get a rapid increase in autism if it's a genetic condition. So if that's your mindset, then you will believe that the increase must be because we're recognizing it better and because we have more awareness and we're now able to diagnose younger and there's this whole expanded diagnostic criteria. Um, but for me, what I've learned through all the research that I've done is that we are, we definitely are more aware of autism and we are diagnosing younger, but this only explains part of the increase. We are definitely more aware of it now and it is because we're, we're seeing it more and it is more prevalent. Um, and when you start to understand autism as an epigenetic condition, the rate increase actually makes sense because our lifestyle and our environment has changed significantly over the last 50 years. 
we have far more exposures to toxins and pollutions in our environment that weren't around back in the day. Uh, for example, Wi-Fi. We have chemicals in plastics, in cleaning products, in toxins that are sprayed around the household. We have toxins sprayed on our food. Um, I mean, come on. Our lives are so much more stressful now in every, in every sense. And these stresses add up and they can pile up until the body can't take anymore. And that's when a person is tipped over the edge and they start to display these behaviours that we see in children on the spectrum. And a lot of these behaviours we can help manage and control through lifestyle changes. Okay, so yes, autism is on the rise and we do need to start looking at it. Um, it is really important we can help a child manage these symptoms um, if we start making lifestyle changes. So when we start exploring interventions for autism, we, we've become really consumed with evidence-based practice. And I absolutely am 100% for evidence-based practice. It's absolutely necessary. We need it to guide our interventions so we know what we're doing. But these days, it seems that unless we have hard science or unless we have this double-blind, placebo-controlled study proving something to be effective, then we don't even bother with it. We push it to the side and say, you know, it doesn't have the research supporting it. I'm not even going to try it. And we turn away and we close our eyes to it. But what I want you to remember is that we can't really get this kind of study on the group of people that we're trying to help because no two kids on the spectrum are the same. And these kind of studies assume that kids have exactly the same problem. And they don't. They have very different challenges. We know that we know the saying, once you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And it couldn't be more true. Kids can be absolute polar opposites, but still have the exact same diagnosis. So it makes it very extremely difficult to do a study on such a heterogeneous population. So we need to be extremely open-minded and, and look at things beyond, um, beyond what we currently know. And if it's not ridiculously expensive, if it's not dangerous, if it's safe, if it's potentially effective, if it's it makes sense go for it go ahead and try it you'd be mad if you didn't give it a go of course evidence base is always better um evidence is always better than having no evidence of course but there is no holy grail to autism intervention and we're never going to find it because autism is a whole child whole body condition and it is so individual you know, you know, if you have a child on the spectrum and you meet another child on the spectrum, they will be very different and you'll be able to see that immediately. And when you dive deeper into their symptoms and what's happening and what's going on for them, you will know that the intervention that you have for your child will be very different to the intervention that this other child will have. So we can't become so reliant on evidence-based when we're talking about autism. Um, we need to look at 
the look at the challenge in the context of your child's real life and often I have to draw upon my own clinical experience and what I've learned from working with different children and what's worked and and play around with different intervention ideas because they all require something different so don't wait 20 or 30 years for that double blind placebo controlled trial to show you what you potentially already know. You know, I think a lot of the time you need to be following your gut instinct and I think parents are often leading this grassroots movement of um, making change and you guys are the ones that know intuitively what you need to do. So follow that. Please trust yourself. Um, And it is, it's taking common sense approaches so looking at the common sense things like diet reducing emf exposures um, looking at chemicals and reducing chemicals in and around the home reducing emotional stress and the busyness of your daily routine all these things are common sense things so they do no harm and they can potentially be effective they're safe they're natural um, really getting back to basics Okay. So this is the last little bit that I want to talk about before I start to wrap things up. And as you know, I am a massive advocate for working with all kinds of practitioners and therapists. So occupational therapists, speech pathologists, psychologists, so the real traditional kinds of therapists, as well as biomedical people in the biomedical world, um, nutritionists, chiropractors, Integrative doctors, also looking at uh, different kinds of therapists in terms of the kind of model that they follow. So ABA therapists, floor time therapists. Really, we are all looking at the same complex issue from a different perspective. So we all bring something unique and valuable. And together, we are addressing the whole child. Not one discipline not one discipline actually looks at the whole child. We need to be working with a combination of different disciplines. And, you know, it's a matter of trial and error. Not all, you won't need all disciplines, um, but it's working out what is the best fit for your child and what your child needs, what your child's needs are. And unfortunately, you know, I have never been part of a community that has been as divided as the autism community. And that's a problem because currently we've got all these amazing teachers and doctors and healthcare professionals and family and friends and everyone's doing their own research in their own little silos and we're working very isolated from one one another and we're just not talking and integrating all this information that we know. And we need to be talking. I mean, we're very autistic in how we're viewing autism. Our communication's poor. We have a bit of mind blindness going on. We're just operating in these individual silos and just not communicating with each other. So if we imagine if we all just started communicating and sharing what we know, it would just mean that this whole child approach would be so much easier for us. And I honestly believe that the force that brings us together is stronger than what pulls us apart. So although 
everyone has their different disciplines and they believe that their uh, intervention is what a child needs. Of course, everyone thinks that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in that profession. Um, we need to understand that it, we need to be looking at the body as a whole and we need to take little bits of everything. Um, and really, it's a bit of a smorgasbord. We need to work out that right fit. So we need to work together on this, guys, and we need to work together for the greater good of the children that we're helping in the child. So to wrap it all up, I want to say this. The eyes are useless when the mind is blind. Now, this saying pretty much says exactly what I'm trying to say. If we become so preoccupied by the belief that autism is this hardwired condition, because that's the way we've always viewed it, then we close the door to lifestyle as an intervention for kids on the spectrum because we don't look at it as an epigenetic condition that can be helped through lifestyle changes. Autism is so complex. It requires this whole child approach. And we need to be looking at autism from all different angles and all different perspectives. And we need to respect that different disciplines do things differently and that everyone has something to offer that can be useful. We need to remember that the diagnosis is subjective. So don't go placing your child into this box and just looking at autism as a behavioral condition just because our current understanding of autism is based on a behavioral diagnosis. Autism is far more than the behaviors that we see. There's a lot more that's going on in the body. Um, we need to... We need to remember that the brain has just so much capacity to learn. We, we know so much more about uh, autism as a condition that can be changed through changing the literally the architecture of the brain, so rewiring the brain. So please don't close your mind to what autism is or how you can intervene because there is so much out there and we really just need to look at autism from a different angle. Um, and if this is something that makes sense to you and you're trying new approaches with your child at home, lifestyle intervention approaches, feel free to share this information with your friends and your family or other health professionals that you're working with who may not get it yet because this can help them better understand why you are making those lifestyle choices and why they should be supporting you on this journey because you shouldn't have to go through it alone. Um, it's important that you do this because you can make really significant changes from home base. So thank you so much for listening in. It has been such a pleasure chatting to you. This is the first long, big podcast that I've done and I hope it all makes sense. If you have any questions, I would love to hear it. Um, and I look forward to 2019 and everything that it's going to bring. So all the best. Have an amazing day. And I will talk to you soon, guys. Bye. Thanks, guys, for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook, so I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils 
And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I have created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, these are printables that are available on the, on the website so you can access today. Finally, if you love this fortnightly injection of information, please subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is head to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And every fortnight, you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.